Let me pray real quick before we uh, open God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, the greatest need of our souls right now is that we would come to your scriptures and that we would see your glory and your worth and your beauty. And as we turn our hearts, Father, to your word and to the series that we begin today, recognizing the, the power and the glory and the unity of the church, the beauty that you've given to us through your Son, I pray that we would see it with clarity. I pray that you would impress on all of our hearts, mine included, the incredible, awesome privilege it is to be numbered among your people and to be joined to you and your Son. And so I ask this to be clear to us and for us to live in light of it in the weeks and months to come, Father. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Human history is divided by one event. All of human history. One event divides it all, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything else that has happened in history is determined and measured and and accounted based on that one single event, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection with the cross right at the center. And only hours before that central moment in history, in the upper room of presumably a modest dwelling in Jerusalem, Jesus, the very person to be crucified to, to divide history really in half, said a prayer in the presence of his disciples. And this prayer that he said in their presence was for them to hear and for us to hear. It is, uh, of course, the high priestly prayer of John 17. The entire chapter is a prayer. And I'm going to read to you, starting with verse 18, part of what Jesus prayed for his disciples. He's praying to his Father, and he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So this is what Jesus was yearning to pray just before the cross. This is what he desired to pray in front of his disciples. This same Jesus is only hours away from being arrested, being beaten, being tried, being scourged, being pinned to a cross just outside the city that he said this prayer in, and he would die there on that cross. With these disciples who've heard him say this prayer, most of them cowering inside the city, but no doubt with this prayer still ringing in their ears. One of the things, I, one of the things I, I love about our prayer gatherings on Sunday, and if you haven't been to one, I commend it to you, even if you just plug in through Zoom, it is 
a benefit for you to be a participant in this. One of the things I love about our Sunday prayer gatherings is that they're corporate. They're public prayers. They're done together with the body. And we can hear people pray for us and pray for others that they love in the church and outside the church. Praying in private is good and right, and we should have a a healthy uh, prayer life in private. But praying together has this unique, special attribute because you are laying out your heart bare before your brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether you're doing that in need or in sorrow because you've lost something or in repentance and confession because you've done something you know is wrong or even in praise, praying in a corporate sphere, in the presence of others, is huge. And Jesus is doing that right here. He's praying for his disciples in front of his disciples, and he's also praying for us. I don't know if you caught that. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's looking at his 11 disciples now. Judas has already left. And he's saying, I'm not only praying for you, 11, I'm praying for the people who will believe in you one day because of what I'm telling you, because of the word you're going to proclaim. And that means us. That includes risen hope. That includes the church right now in 2021. Everyone who would one day believe because of his word. And so think about that. Jesus is praying for us here in this text. He's praying for you. And he's not only doing that, he's telling us what he is praying for. He's making it clear. So let that reality sit on you. The most important, if you're a Christian, the most important prayer ever said for you is in this text. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed for you before he went to the cross. And you'll see some of the reasons why that's the case. 2,000 years before you even existed, Jesus prayed for you. So what did he pray for? Well, he prayed for many things in the the, the whole run of the chapter, but the central thrust, the, the culmination, the focal point of this prayer is actually seen first in verse 21. When he says of his disciples and of us, that they may all be one. Talking about his people. And Jesus doesn't just ask for this once in this prayer. He asks the Father for this three times. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one, he and the Father. And verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. This is why I said it's the focal point of the prayer. Jesus asked the Father three times for this in the course of seconds. And I'm not saying this to downplay the other parts of the prayer. They're critical. They're important. But he asked for this three times. And the way he asks, think about this, is mind-boggling. He says that they may all be one just as, listen to this, you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, the church, may also be in us, the, the people of God, the disciples, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And then he says, the glory, Father, that you've given me, I have given to them. What is that glory? He explains it. That they may be one even as we are one, the Father and the Son. I in them and you, Father, in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and so that they'll know that the love that you've loved them with is the same love that you loved me with. 
So the reality of this oneness for those who believe in Jesus is such that it is rooted in and reflecting the oneness that the Father has with the Son, which is deeply profound because they are one being with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the kind of unity he is, he is piling on in this prayer. He says, it's as though you are in me and I am in you. You don't get much closer than that. Overlapping and, and closer than your own skin. As we are found in the Father and the Son, the, the, the idea that he's presenting here is that we are all joined together as one. And Jesus describes this as a glory that he has given to those who believe in him. He says, it's a glory that I received from my Father and a glory that is on display in us as we are one together, showing the world that the Father actually did send his Son. That's the main purpose that Jesus mentions here, that the world encounters the kind of unity and love the church has. Those who have trusted in Christ and embraced Jesus, and that unity convinces them that God the Father really did send the God the Son. And not only that, but that God the Father loves these people just like he loves his Son. That's staggering. God the Father loves you just like he loves his Son. The part of that is, that is astonishing, that may have hit you, we're creatures, we're finite creatures, and we're also sinners who have rebelled against God. I mean, we've lived our lives every day. We've done something, said something, thought of something that has dishonored God. And Jesus is none of those things. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is perfect morally. And yet the, the love that the Father has for his infinitely perfect Son, his infinitely worthy Son, his infinitely beautiful Son, is the same exact love he has for us because of the cross. A love that can only be seen very clearly when we are, as a church, one. This is what Jesus prayed for us. It's what he prayed for you as he went to the cross. And as he did that, he died so that this prayer would not hang in the air unanswered. He died so that this prayer would come true. That's what the cross did. All, all of the promises that Christ makes in his ministry, in the scriptures that we see, promises that he makes to those who trust in him are guaranteed through the cross. He died to secure those promises, that they would be true for us. And what we're beginning today is a series that we're calling That They May Be One, that zeroes in on and focuses on this reality that Jesus is praying for in this prayer, the, the oneness of the church, the unity of of the body of Christ. Why is this important? What does it look like when we see it in the world? How do we actively pursue this in our lives? And what does it like really mean for us to be one? And over the next few weeks, God willing, we'll have different angles at this as we look at the church. But to begin to ask this question, I want to turn to Acts 2.42. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you you do, please grab them. Turn with me to Acts 2.42. What we're going to see here is we're going to see the church come into existence. Well, we're not going to see this. This is preceding the passage we're going to read. We're going to see what the church looks like 
after it has first come into existence, when the, the Holy Spirit has fallen during Pente- Pentecost, we get our, our first glimpse of the answer that the Father gives to Jesus' prayer. We see the oneness of God's people in the flesh as the church is brought into existence. So Acts 2.42 begins like this. It says, And they, that's the first church ever, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, for a lot of us, you may be really familiar with this passage. We often read a passage like this when we want to talk about small groups or when we want to talk about the significance of caring for needs in the body, and those are important things. We we, we bring this passage up when we want to talk about first things, like what's most critical to the church. Well, let's look at the church when it was first born, and let's see how they lived. And this is important. These are all true things that this passage tells us. But what I want to do is I want to key in on one paradigm in this text, one aspect that I'd like us to, as we begin this series, fix our eyes and our hearts on, and it is the one that I feel is most critical coming out of 2020 and coming out of a lot of the division that we saw in the church in the past months and last year, really, and key in on this aspect because I believe that Not only is it significant because Jesus prayed for it for us, but because this is the underlying theme in this passage. And that aspect is not necessarily the devotion to the word and prayer, which are essential, not necessarily generosity and selfless giving, caring for the needs of the body, which are huge. What is woven in every single layer of this text is the reality of being together as a church. All those other things are essential and necessary, and we've had plenty of sermons on those. But this is what I feel called to to focus on as we go into the summer. What does it mean to be together as a church? So look at the text with me again. Verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship and the breaking of bread, which really means ultimately that they got together and they shared food with one another. They were actively meeting together. The word here, fellowship, means koinonia. It's in the, in the Greek. Koinonia, it means participation or, or sharing with someone. It, it is being together, being with them in life. And uh, if you weren't convinced that togetherness is the main thrust of this passage in Acts 2, look at verse 44. It says it conclusively. And all who believed were, were what? Together. They were together and had all things in common. So they're they're not just physically together. There's, There's a deeper sort of spiritual, relational togetherness here. They shared everything, verse 45 tells us. 
And again, if we're not convinced that this is what Luke wants us to get from this, at least the major theme of this passage, verse 46 tells us, day by day, attending the temple, how? Together. And breaking bread in their homes. Not alone. They were doing that as well together. These people were together all the time. You could not separate them. If you were a believer in the first century when this was happening, you were part of the family. This is how that played out. Their togetherness was synonymous with who they were. And that's what Luke wants us to see here with his repeated use of the word together. It it, it was not normal. Like we think about this, man, that sounds like a cult. It sounds weird for them to be so intimate with each other and to, to be so connected day by day by day. But that wasn't normal back then just like it's not normal now. But this reality was the natural outworking of what happened when these people first trusted in Christ. It led them to live this way. It gave them the zeal to be selfless and to always be in each other's lives. In fact, the very word church, the word church in the Greek is ekklesia, and it literally means assembled. It's, it's a congregation. It's a, it's a group of people that have gathered together. It's, it's not a building. It's, it's not even a group of people doing random acts of kindness. It is a gathering of people. The very definition of the word is that. But it's more than physical. In Acts 4.32, this same church that we just saw in Acts 2 is described by Luke in a different way. And I want to key in on this because this shows that it's deeper than simply physically being together. It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, this right here is the oneness that Jesus prayed for. Note that it says, Luke Luke doesn't say, well, part of them were really big on on being of one mind and one heart and one soul. Or, Or maybe a large portion of them were, he says, the full number which is his way of going, he goes out of the way to stress, this was everyone present. This is who they were. This was a a universal response, that they had one heart and one soul. They were united together in such a way that they saw themselves as one body. So, So unified that there was no one ever in need, because everything that belonged to me was mine to give to you if you needed it. And, and to be clear, this isn't describing some sort of government mandate or some sort of forced, you know, partition. This is describing who they genuinely were. This was voluntary. This was joyful. This, was, this giving flowed from the heart, and it was rooted in the fact that they recognized we are one body. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 13 says it like this. Paul says, for just as the body, the physical body that we have is one, and has many members, many parts. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ and his people. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is exactly what Jesus was praying for. When he asked his father, that they may be one. And their oneness here wasn't mechanical. It wasn't like a superficial kind of facade. Paul says that was created here by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God had done a work in all of their hearts to unite them together in a way that is far deeper 
than biology, far deeper than, than family, far deeper than a location or a country or political alignment. This is being united by the very hands of the living God. It says we drank of one spirit. We were baptized in one spirit so that we might all be one. So saying that Christians, the church, is one isn't like a romanticized way of describing kind of generic community that you'd find anywhere else in the world about people who are passionate. That's not what's going on here. This church was created by the Spirit of God, belongs to God the Father, and therefore there is, there is nothing like this community in the entire world. There's nothing like the church in the entire world. The church is utterly unique and distinct because of this origin. Paul goes out of his way to, to explain this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Let me read this to you. It's profound. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he's, he's writing them from prison, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, he says, and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, he says, and through all and in all. When we get to a text like this, we need to feel the weight of this. Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about us if we belong to Christ. And he's saying that our unity is central to what it means to be a Christian. It's not this arbitrary fact that is tacked onto our Christianity out here, and we could take it or leave it. It's the very center of everything that Christianity is. There is a unity here that defies explanation. Look at all the times he uses one in this passage. One body, he says, talking about the church. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. He's not trying to be poetic here. This is not some kind of rhythm that he's creating. He's trying to make a point. We all come from one Father, through one Spirit, united to one Christ. We have one hope, one faith. These are all parts of who we are. And therefore, Paul is saying it is imperative that we live in such a way that shows this and does not obscure it from the world. He commands us here, like, walk with each other in humility. Walk with gentleness towards each other. Be patient and bear with one another in love. And he's saying all of this is, is rooted in and arises from a, a desire to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is how Christians are called to live. I think he's telling us this. I don't think. I know he's telling us this because it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen on its own. Paul would not need to write us commending this to us if it was just some sort of autopilot scenario. And he's telling us this because this is important for us to hear and not simply sit back and live whatever way we want to. Paul shows us that in the life of the Christian and in the church, unity actually must be fought for. Unity must be sought after. We must be eager to maintain the work of the Spirit. If there's no eagerness there, we're not, we're not in alignment with this text. Um, and he tells us why here. We have one God. This is an amazing facet. I mean, just a few words in Greek. So powerful. 
We all have one God. He's the father of all. And Paul says he is over all of the people in the church. He is through all the people in the church. And he is in all the people in the church. And so that when I'm looking at you right now, and when you're looking at me and you're looking at each other right now, we are looking at people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He is working through us. He is dwelling in us. He is, he is over us sovereignly. And he's doing the same in every single Christian you know. And this is what makes us one. This fellowship in God joins us to each other. And the relationship we have with God makes this a reality with each other. A reality that Jesus prayed for, like I said at the beginning, that all of us, all of Risen Hope, would be gathered together as one people. So this is what Christianity should look like. It doesn't always look like this. Tragically, it doesn't. This is what it's called to look like. Paul is telling the Ephesians here, for example, probably because in part he knows that it doesn't always look like that in Ephesus. And it doesn't always look like that in Risen Hope. And it doesn't always look like that in the church globally. This is the reality that we are called to walk in. And this is what Jesus prayed for and died for. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what should our response be to Jesus' prayer that he prayed in front of us. And I want to put that response in three headings, under three headings. So last week, if you were here with me, did something I don't normally do. I gave you an easy set of outline notes. I gave you three headings. I'm doing it again this week. Congratulations, the bonus round. Um, So if you take notes, I'm going to give them to you right now. Here are the three headings I want to look at how we should respond to this. The first one is necessity. Necessity. The second one is responsibility. And the third one is glory. Necessity, responsibility, and glory. And I want to use these as ways for us to look at the scriptures and engage what this call looks like in our lives today. What it looks like in our church. Here's the first one, necessity. We need to recognize and embrace the blessing of what it means to actually have a church family. This is, this is not something we can afford to take for granted. This is not a blessing that has been, been given to, to us by God that we can just simply ignore. This is huge. It's very easy for us to take going to church, being with people who are in our, uh, the body of Christ and fellowshipping with them. It's very easy for us to take that for granted. But it's not a given I mean, gathering together is not a given. 2020 showed us that. It can be taken away. And we are, we are warned in Scripture not to take it for granted. For example, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. It says this. The author says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author is saying here that meeting together is a necessity. It's not extra. We we should never neglect it. If we can do it physically, we must do it. In fact, he says, as the day, the last day of human history, the day when Christ comes back, as that gets closer and closer and closer to us, we should desire to do it all the more, the author is telling us. And part of what this is, is we, we, we should consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, encourage one another. And all of that in the context of being with each other, being meeting together. If, if 2020 taught us anything, it, 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 it should be that there is a profound importance 
in physical gathering. Like we desire it. We yearn for it. And the fact of the matter is, I think a lot of us, I'm going to speak for myself, took it for granted. Took the fact that we could every Sunday get together as a church, meet in John Muir when we were there. I just took it for, I I was like, how is this going to get canceled? How is this ever going to, I mean, we were doing it every week, every week, every week. And then it, the valve shut off. And we had to figure out how this was going to work after we weren't able to meet together in person. And 2020 has taught us that we can't take that for granted. The author of Hebrews is saying that to us. Don't neglect meeting together. There is something unique and special about gathering physically together with, with brothers and sisters in Christ that binds us together. Something that Zoom and teams, as great as those things are, praise God for common grace, cannot quite replicate the way that this does. And, and so there, there's, there's something about physically being together that the author of Hebrews and the scriptures consider as a necessity. We were made from the very beginning, from Acts 2, to be together, and that's how we were made to be forever. We'll get to that in a second. But this is a gift that continues after the day that Jesus returns. Therefore, we must never neglect the gift that we have from God here. That's number one. Number two, responsibility. So the church isn't just a necessity for the Christian. The church is a responsibility that we all have. And we see this again in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And if you do have your Bibles, I think seeing this text is actually really important and convicting. So if you get a chance, open it up. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is, it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the author of, of Hebrews is writing here a church. He's writing Christians. And he's telling them, he's telling us who are reading the scriptures, we need to take care to do something. That as believers in Christ, we all must take care to do something very important. This is a responsibility of everyone who's trusted in Jesus. Because the concern that the author has here, and he intimates it throughout this passage, is that someone can go through the motions of Christianity. They can just check the boxes of religious activities and words and phrases, and they can do things on the outside and yet not actually believe any of it. It it can be a, a veneer, a facade, for what he refers to as an evil, unbelieving heart that will eventually fall away from the living God. And so he commands everyone who's a Christian, you need to take care. And this command, as made clear in verse 14, has eternal implications. Obedience here isn't an option. This is a matter of eternity, which is very stark and serious and underscored by what he says in verse 14. We have only come to share in Christ if we hold firm or hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if you're looking at verse 12 and verse 14, you're seeing take care in verse 12 and hold firm in verse 14. And they're the same urgency pointing to verse 13, which we're going to get to in a second. These are not additive. These are not supplemental. These are essential for the Christian life. 
And so this is a responsibility that we have, that all of us have for each other. Now, before I get to what that responsibility is, which he outlines in verse 13, don't peek ahead, um, I want to I wanna just clarify something. Because I think when we talk like this about obedience being necessary, the immediate uh, thought that comes into our mind is, oh, this is like salvation by works. Or you're saying, Jeremy, that God isn't actually going to keep his promise that he'll keep us to the end, which we saw in John 6 last week. And what I need to do is I need to distinguish when we talk about this stuff between the means of something and the end of something. Those are different things, the means of something and the end. And that's what is being distinguished here. God has promised in John 6 and throughout the scriptures that all who belong to him, he will keep and he will bring home. So if your faith is in Christ Jesus right now, that promise is for you. But he keeps you and he brings you home through means in your life. And one of those means is hearing this command in Hebrews and saying, I agree with this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to live in that way. I'm going to obey it, not by my own strength, not by my own willpower, but by the Spirit. God promises to bring us home, and then he accomplishes that through our own obedience, an obedience that isn't achieved by the flesh, isn't achieved by our own abilities, but achieved by the Holy Spirit. It's wrought by the Spirit. We are commanded here to take care and to hold firm. And our doing of those things through Spirit-empowered obedience is evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ will finish the work that he started in us. He will never let us go. And this is a vital distinction to make because we cannot, in our lives, we cannot assume that we can just coast and go on autopilot we, we who belong to Christ must hear the command of Christ through the author of Hebrews and obey. So what is the command? Verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that's what taking care looks like. That's what holding firm looks like. It looks like exhortation. It looks like us speaking into each other's lives and, and loving the people who are in our local church and outside our local church, but are believers through gracious words. And verse 13 tells us we should do this every single day. You see that? Exhort one another every day so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That hardening that he's referring there to is referring to what happens in verse 12, the falling away from God, falling away from the living God. It is to have a hard heart is to believe the lie of the enemy that sin has more joy and more pleasure in it ultimately than God. That's what a hard heart is. The deceitfulness of sin is believing that lie. And he says, um, if you have a hard heart like this, it is an evil, unbelieving heart. And the Christian is different. The Christian who's been made that way by God wages war against the lie of the enemy. We will not allow that lie to come into our lives. Um, and, and it doesn't mean we live perfect lives, but it means that we wage war against it. And we do that, this author tells us, in community. It happens in the body. Uh, exhortations to other people 
to, to keep them away from things that are going to hurt them don't happen outside of deep relationships. They don't happen outside of sharing life with one another. And this is why unity in the body is so crucial. <clears throat> there are massive realities that flow from our need to be together. So in the world, there is, and in the scriptures, we see this is clear, there's no such thing as a solo Christian. There's no such thing as a, like a rogue Christian. They don't exist. And the reason why is that to say there's a solo Christian out there is to have a contradiction in terms. Christians were always meant to be together in community. Because God determined, as this text tells us, in his wisdom to have the unity of the body, the togetherness of his people, be his chosen instrument to bring his children home one by one. We come to share in Christ because we are part of this church. You're speaking into my life. I'm speaking into your life. And it's through those exhortations that we protect each other from the deceitfulness of sin. And God brings each of us into his heavenly kingdom. So being together is a responsibility. It's a necessity and it's a responsibility that has eternal implications. God calls us to exhort one another every day, to lovingly, graciously engage each other, encourage each other, walk with each other as long as it is called today, he says, and that requires fellowship. So that's number two. Number three, and finally, glory. Part of the reason why the church is, uh, a church, like being gathered together, is for a lot of us such a low priority. For so many Christians, going to church is, is such a, like a low-tier thing. I do it every once in a while when I can. It's a beautiful day. I'm going to go do something else. The reason why uh, that we see gathering together as kind of like an option and an add-on and not essential is because most Christians do not understand what church is. They see it as a community with like religious elements that are quaint and attractive and positive and beneficial, and they don't see the glory of the church at all, the beauty of what God has done in the church. And church is just for them a group of people that affirm some things about Jesus and that they can call friends. But in reality, what the scripture tells us about the church is that the church is actually the plan of God for all of humanity from all eternity. And it is a plan to show and display his matchless wisdom. Let me say that again. The church, us, risen hope, believers gathered together, is a picture that God has painted showing his wisdom and his power and glory and he painted it before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses, verse 8, and follows. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? 
He's saying that as he goes out and he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ and Gentile believers hear him and say, I want that Jesus. And they believe and they're gathered into these local congregations, these local ecclesia, these churches. As that happens, he says God, who has in himself had this mystery hidden for ages, intends to show through this church his manifold wisdom to these angelic beings, these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These are, look through the, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians. These are, these are beings that are supernatural and they are of such a kind of quality, so extraordinary, that if we saw them right now, we would probably be tempted to worship them. I mean, that was, that's what happens to John in Revelation. There's angels constantly picking him up saying, hey, let's stop, stop, cut it out. You're supposed to worship Jesus. And, and these are the beings that Paul is talking about here. These supernatural, extraordinary rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, God right now is displaying to them his manifold wisdom through us, through you and me. This is the glory that Jesus was saying that he would give to his people, the glory that he had received from his Father so that they would be none. So we need to get out of our minds the idea that church is just this thing that we do. It's kind of mundane. It's boring. Um, and we need to recognize, we need to pull back from that because it's so off base with what the Scriptures say and recognize that it, the church family could not be more important. The value that God has given to the church is a value that he puts on display as a testament to these heavenly beings that his wisdom is in the church. That he's using his church to display his glory through the gospel and through what the church is. He does that. That's who we are. And we were planned by God before creation. Before the universe existed, this was his plan. And then when Jesus came in the upper room with his disciples, he prayed for this. This is what he prayed for. Hours before the cross, Jesus got before his, his 11 closest friends, extending through them to all of us in the world that would believe because of their word, and he asks his Father that we might all be one. And then a few hours later, he goes to the cross and he pays for that to happen with his own blood. He pays with his own life to make sure I will gather into one body all of those who belong to me. It's going to happen. I'm going to accomplish it through the cross. Now think about that for a moment. This hits us too light, I think. Me, I'll just speak for myself. No one had to die for God to create the universe. He simply spoke. And the universe existed. But in order for the church to come into being, in order for broken sinners to be reconciled to God and to be folded into a body that is perfectly one, God himself had to die to make that happen. God the Son paid for it with his own blood. That's what we read and discover in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, 
Revelation 5, 9 through 10, we have this picture of the Lamb, Christ, who is being worshipped because it says he was slain and by his blood he ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and he has made them a kingdom, one kingdom. Not 12, not 8, not 45, one kingdom and priests to our God. That's the church. That's this. That's an event that's going to be in our lives in the future. And this is what we've been called to embrace. The cross purchased this glory and it is ours forever. That's what this scene in Revelation 5 is showing us. And it is one that we can't afford to, in our lives, neglect. It is, think about this, the only community that you will have, the only relationships that you will have that will extend into eternity. Every other relationship we have, whether it's our job, whether it's our work, whether it's family, who are unbelievers tragically, every other relationship will disintegrate on the shores of eternity except for this one. This one continues out into endless ages with our King in glory and in joy. And so in the coming weeks, as we, as a church, look at, and we're going to be doing this, God willing, throughout the month of July, as we look at the unity of the church and what it means to be one, what it means to be together, the exhortation I have for all of us, the exhortation I have for my own heart is to never take this for granted. Not for one moment. This togetherness, this unity that Jesus prays for, this, this love that we should have for each other is what should define the church. It's what should be displayed for the world to see. And that fellowship would not be what we do if we just feel up for it or if we want to do, like, I, I don't feel like having people over today or I don't feel like doing this. It would, it would instead be woven into our DNA so that it's second nature. And I know we all have weaknesses and difficulties with scheduling and that, but that this would be a reality that we would see, God planned this before there were stars in the sky. God planned this before there was anything in existence. This was the mystery hidden in ages for him and risen hope is part of that plan. We are all part of that plan. We are what Jesus prayed for. And we are what Jesus paid for on the cross. And so in the, in the next few moments, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper. There's single-serve communion cups over on the table there. If you're inclined and if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are welcome to do that during the, the next song. And what I would ask us to do is, is, as we partake in those elements, I would ask that we, we, we just try as much as we are able and enabled by the Spirit to recognize the glory that Christ has given us to recognize what it means to be the church and to, to really ask God in our hearts to allow the gravity of this truth to land on us so that we would look something like Acts 2. And I, I feel blessed to have a church community like Risen Hope. There is love and tenderness and joy in this church. And so please do not take anything I'm saying here as a... As a uh, as, as us falling short of, 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 of being loving at, in this way. But there, there's obviously a lot of work we can do, and there's division in the church at large, and, and we need to let the gravity of this truth weigh on us, that all of us would be together, and that we would, with gladness in our hearts, join each other 
in being one. Love one another. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Be with each other physically. And ultimately, like, like God says through the author of Hebrews, be used by God in each other's lives as his instrument to bring each of us safely home. The church is here because God desired for us to all be together going to him in one accord. He, he wants us working in each other's lives, loving each other in such a way that we are moving day by day to becoming perfectly one, like Jesus prayed for. This is the calling of the church. This is what we've been invited into. Let's embrace this with gladness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel completely unable <laughs> to, to really communicate the, 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 the level, the magnitude of glory and beauty that is in the church, that you see in the church, despite all of our weaknesses, despite all of our, our, our falling shorts, despite all of our sin and the iniquity that, that gets in the way of, of, of loving others selflessly, you see in the church the glory that you gave your son and that he gave us and that we have through the cross. And I pray that that reality, Father, would permeate every heart and soul that belongs to Risen Hope. That it would become second nature to be selfless. Second nature to speak gentle, humble words of love and encouragement and exhortation in the hearts and, and souls of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I plead with you, Father, do a work in me, do a work in my friends, and, and make us, Father God, in as much as you are pleased to, make us one. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.